Tonight's subject is called Prophecy Superpowers. It's on the Antichrist. Before we begin, I'd just like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening as we open the Bible together, we pray for your spirit to be here. I pray that you would grant us understanding and wisdom so that we might know what the Bible truly teaches. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight I want to share a picture with you that some of you that have been to Rome may remember. This is a famous statue. It's not famous because it's so attractive. And my wife is actually, she's from Italy, so she lived there in Milan, but she pronounces this statue's name correctly. I can't, so I'm just going to tell you that the, the English anglicized version, they call this statue the old man of truth. And the, there's a legend about this statue. The legend says that someday in your life, you will round a figurative corner, you know, in your life, and you will come face to face with the old man of truth. And according to the legend, it says that your life will be forever changed by how you respond to that truth. Now, I want you to know that in a seminar like this, I am well aware that in this room tonight, we have people from all walks of life. We have people from various backgrounds, various faiths, various Christian experiences. And there's going to come a night, I guarantee it, that you are going to be challenged, you are going to have some cognitive dissonance, and you're going to be challenged to think, how do I know what he's saying is true? Now, I want you to know that when it comes to being true, it doesn't matter if you always believe something because that doesn't make it true. Does that make sense? Uh, you know, you and I both know in history that there were beliefs that were held that were held for centuries, even millennia, that were totally not true, even though it was always believed to be so. Does that make sense? And I really, I really hope, based on the demographic of who we mailed to, and I hope that, you know, I'm not trying to be deliberately offensive, but, you know, this idea about, well, let me not get into it, but you, you understand, there are so many theories out there today in the world that are just believed to be true because we've always accepted it to be true. But that doesn't make it true. Now, let me pause and ask you to think for a moment. What if your parents believed it? Does that make it true? Not necessarily. Now, it's not that all, everything our parents believed were lies, but does it make sense that just because our parents accepted something as true, that doesn't validate it as being true? Does that make sense? And, and I want to say this too, because just because a church teaches something that doesn't make it true either. Does that make sense? And I say that for this church. I say that for the church down the street. I say that for the biggest church in town. It does not matter if a church teaches it. That doesn't validate it to be true. When it comes to spiritual things, the Bible gives us a way by which we can know that something is true. So let me read these verses to you, and I want you to notice what the Bible says. 
The Bible says, thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness in Psalm 119, verse 142. And then it says, and thy law is the what? Is the truth. Now, let me see if I can explain how you can use this. If on one of these upcoming presentations, I say something that is different or contradictory to the Ten Commandments, you automatically know that it's not true because the Bible says that God's law is what? God's law is truth, okay? Does that make sense? Here's another example. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the what? The truth. Now, this is simple. If Jesus lived it or taught it, it's automatically what? It's automatically true. Which means if there comes a night when you read something, watch something on the internet, watch something on TV, or hear me say something that's different than what Jesus did or what Jesus taught, it's automatically not what? It's not true. And by the way, do you realize that between this and the first verse that we read in Psalms 119, there's no, um, there's no dissension. Why? Because Jesus lived in his life the obedience to God's law. Does that make sense? Let's look at one more. The Bible says in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is what? Now, this is also easy to understand. If you hear something, if you read something, if you watch something, if you hear me say something that's different than what the Bible says, you automatically know that it's not what? It's not true. It doesn't matter how expensive or how big the building of the church is. It doesn't matter how famous the speaker is. The point is that if they contradict the Bible, you automatically know that it's not what? It's not true. And there's no discrepancy between this point and the first two, because Jesus is also known as the Word of God. Isn't that right? And so these three things, they, they, they come together to help us. This principle, if you take it even from here, it will help you to avoid being deceived. Now, I know this is going to sound strange, but most people would rather be blissfully ignorant than really see the truth. Look at this observation by Winston Churchill. He said, most people sometime in their lives stumble across the truth. Most jump up brush themselves off, and hurry on about their business as if nothing had happened. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration. I want you to imagine you go on vacation. And you go on vacation, let's say you're gone for a month. You come back home. In your mailbox is a big, fat envelope from Capital One, or Chase, or American Express, okay? <laughs> and I think you understand what I mean when I say most of us would probably open that letter last. Does that make sense? Why? It's not because we think that they're lying, because sometimes the truth is painful. Isn't that true? It's, you seem like very financially responsible people, but you get the point, right? In other words, even though it's true, we don't always want to see what the truth is. Another example that I like to use Imagine you went to the doctor for a biopsy. No doubt when he calls you or he sends you a message, maybe by the mail, 
with the results of your biopsy. I'm guessing that most of us hesitate before we listen or before we open the message, not because we think he's dishonest, but sometimes we would rather ignore the truth because the truth can be painful. Does that make sense? And that goes with your weight, it goes with your you know, finances, it goes with a lot of different things. Now, why am I saying this to you tonight? You might ignore your financial situation, you might ignore some issues about your health. When it comes to spiritual things, we ignore these spiritual things to our own detriment. And so I'm going to make this challenge to you at the very beginning. Well, this is not the beginning, this is night four, but I want to make this challenge to you. Don't listen to what I have to say and don't accept what, I, what I'm presenting just because I'm saying it. Check it by those three things, the law of God, Jesus, and the Bible. If it's true, I want you to be willing to follow it because it's true. Can you say amen to that? In other words, don't be afraid of the truth because truth ultimately sets us free. And so in this seminar, I want us to be honest and I want us to look at what the Bible really says. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to read about something that happened to Daniel when he was in Babylon. I want to ask you to follow with me as, I op- as we begin to read in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great, what everybody? Beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. So here we have Daniel. He's having a dream. And in the dream, he sees this vast sea. And what comes up out of the sea? What for what? For beasts come up out of the sea. Now, the other night, when we talked about the mark of the beast, we tried to understand what does a beast represent in the symbolic passages of Scripture. In Daniel 7, the same chapter, verse 17, the angel explains to Daniel, these great beasts, which are for, are for what, everybody? For kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Verse 23, then he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth, what everybody? Kingdom upon earth. Now, I'm going to just pause right there. We said the other night that it's not uncommon in our culture today to equate an animal with a political power, right? We said that, right? And on the screen tonight, I have some very, very simple examples for you. But you realize that this idea probably, or maybe you know, it it was seeded or originated from the Bible because there in Daniel, almost 2,600 years ago, Daniel was given a dream about four beasts and the angel explains that these beasts represent four king or four kingdoms. So now we know what this dream is about and let's talk for a moment about where else in the book of Daniel had Daniel ever seen a dream or a vision that had four kingdoms in it. Where did he see that before? In what chapter? It was in chapter two. Do you remember that we saw that Daniel had a vid- or he, he had help with Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Do you remember that? And there were four medals. Let's review them. The first head was, the head was made out of 
Gold, the chest and arms of? Silver, the belly and thighs of? Brass and the legs of? Iron, right? So there was four metals, and we learned that those four metals represented four kingdoms. But let's be specific about these beasts once more, and let's go back and look at the specifics of them. Daniel 7, 4 says the first was like a what? A lion. And it had what? Eagle's wings. Now, if, if, I, if, if you remember what I shared with you from the other night, Daniel lived 2,600 years ago, and you would fly to Iraq if you wanted to visit him. You'd have to go to the capital city, Baghdad, and you'd have to go south, almost like 50 kilometers to go to this city called Babylon. If you were in Babylon and you walked down what they call Main Street, well, they didn't call it Main Street. Archaeologists refer to it as the parade route or processional thoroughfare, they called it. Daniel would have been accosted by images like this. He would have been able to see everywhere, well, I shouldn't say everywhere, but frequently, this image of a lion. But did you notice that the lion has something very special about it? It has what? It has wings. And I don't know if you noticed that, but these wings on the lion were a common image in Babylon. Now, I want you to, don't forget, who was the dream given to in Daniel 7? It was given to who? Daniel. Now, just think about this. The angel said the four beasts represent four kingdoms, and when the angel tells him, you know, this lion with eagle's wings represents a kingdom, Daniel would have immediately thought, lion, eagle's wings? Oh, I know who that represents. It represents the very kingdom that I'm living in, which is Babylon, because Daniel would have seen this. The other night, I shared with you that this is in Berlin, okay, Germany. This is the actual Ishtar gate. They found it, they took it apart, they reassembled it, and so there in, um, there in Berlin, you can actually glimpse the artwork and these reliefs that are on this ancient architecture. Now, make no mistake, Babylon was the kingdom symbolized by the lion with eagle's wings. And just like Daniel 2, now let's review. What was the image, what part of the image represented Babylon? Do you remember? It was the head made out of gold, okay? Now, don't miss this. The lion is the king of the jungle, and the eagle is the king of the air, right? Now, did you notice that whenever Babylon is symbolized in prophecy, they always use superlatives? Does that make sense? Gold, the most precious of metals. The lion, the king of the jungle, the eagle's wings. This, again, of course, is the symbol of this very rich, very powerful kingdom that existed in Daniel's time. Now, I didn't go into all the minutia of Daniel 7 verse 4. It talks about a, a man's heart would be, the wings would be plucked and a man's heart would be given to it. That makes brief reference to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, which is found in Daniel 4. But because that's not the focus of our study tonight, I'm going to just briefly go over that. The second, king, the second image, or sorry, the second beast that Daniel saw the Bible says, and behold, another beast, a second like to a what? A bear. And it raised up itself on? So, so don't miss this. The bear is standing up, but it's not standing straight. Okay? And it had how many ribs? 
three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. Now, don't miss this. When Daniel sees the lion come up out of the water, what kingdom does that show represent? What kingdom is represented as coming to power? What kingdom? Babylon. Does that make sense? But when he sees the bear, it means that another kingdom is going to take over the dominion or the supremacy of Babylon. Well, we only need to go to history. Even if we looked at the Bible, the Bible actually records in Daniel 5 what kingdom took over from Babylon, and that was the Medes and the Persians. Now, here's an amazing fact. The Medes and the Persians were two kingdoms that were united because their leaders were related. But even though they were related, the kingdoms were not equal in power. The Persians were much more powerful. That's why the Bible says the bear was raised up on one side. And why, the reason why it says it has three ribs is because for Medo-Persia to rise as a world power, it had to destroy Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. So when the prophecy records these details, it was succinctly and very concisely represented in the image of the bear with the three ribs that was lopsided to symbolize the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Now, do you remember in Daniel 2? It was the chest and what? Arms, two arms, right? Medo-Persia, right? The arms of silver that represented the power of that kingdom. All right, then Daniel reads, and after this I beheld and lo, another like a leopard which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four what? Four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, let's review. When the, when the lion comes up with eagle's wings, what kingdom is that? Babylon. It's Babylon. But when the bear comes up, what does that mean about the lion kingdom? It's done, right? Which means that the bear kingdom is the power that overthrows Babylon, which we've learned from history and the Bible is Medo-Persia. But when we see the leopard come up, what does that mean about the... What does that mean about the bear kingdom? It's done, which we just need to go to history and ask ourselves, which kingdom took over from the Medes and the Persians? Well, we know it was Alexander the Great. And, you know, it's very fitting, it's very fitting that it was a leopard. What is a leopard known for? Speed. Speed, right? Now, this is true. If you study Alexander's career, he was only 21 years old. In 12 years... He conquered all the territory that Western civilization has mapped out. He reached, I told you, he reached India. He reached, the, oh, he, he reached the Khyber Pass, which would go through the Himalayas to India. And when he reached that, I mean, basically, there was no maps drawn for that part of the world. And um, I'm going to tell you a short interlude because this bears on our topic for tomorrow night. When Alexander was getting was rising to, to fame, he passed by the city of Jerusalem. And what I'm sharing with you tonight, you can go back and read for yourselves, there is a historian by the name of Josephus. And Josephus records this account in his book called Antiquities. Now, when he was going on his way to conquer a city called Tyrus, he passed by Jerusalem. Now, in those days, an army of Alexander's size, they would camp out by cities, and they would get supplies and food and all these kinds of things. Well, 
the Jews had been favorably treated by the Persians. Cyrus and these other kings were very kind to them. So the Jews did not want to help Alexander, and they closed up their gates and said, go, go somewhere else because we won't help you. So Alexander made a mental note. He said, when I come back, I will kill everybody in the city. He went to conquer Tyrus, <coughs> and that's an interesting story in itself. He spent six months. It permanently altered the coastline of Africa. And then once he was done with that, he came back and he stopped by Jerusalem. But before he did, the night before, he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw someone dressed in white clothes, and a voice in the dream said, do him no harm. So the next day, he came to the city only to discover that they had their gates wide open. And he came, and he looked, and the high priest of the city, his name was Jadua, came out. And when he saw the high priest, he thought, I I've seen that guy in my dream." With no bodyguards, he walked into the temple. And there, at the, at the direction of the high priest, he offered sacrifices. And they actually opened up to him the book of Daniel. And they said, according to this book, which was written some 300 years ago, you are destined to be the next ruler of Asia Minor. Alexander was so flattered. He thought, hey, that's cool. So he actually became friends with them, and because of that, the Bible was translated into Greek. It's called the, it's called the Septuagint, and that was the version of the Bible that scholars tell us Jesus was reading. Now, this painting is famous. It's called Alexander in the Temple at Jerusalem. And it records this moment in history when Alexander studied the book of Daniel, or I shouldn't say studied, but was shown a prophecy in the book of Daniel that pointed to him. And I want you to know that if you'll be with us tomorrow night, I'm going to show you exactly what that prophecy was, okay? We're going to talk about that tomorrow night. Greece ruled the world for about, I don't know, a hundred and... What is that? Almost 200 years? What's interesting is that this kingdom, it rose to power quickly, but at the peak of it, Alexander died. And when he died, his generals, he had amassed 36 generals that served under him. On his deathbed, they asked that loaded question, who is going to receive the kingdom after you die? Now, Alexander was married. He had a wife, and he had a son whose name was also Alexander. And Alexander told them, he said, you know, it will go to my son, but in the meantime, it goes to whoever is the strongest. Well, when Alexander died, they killed his wife and son, and they immediately began to try to prove who was the strongest. And out of those 36, can you guess how many were left? Four. Four. Four generals divided his kingdom to the four points of the compass. And so that's why the Bible says that this kingdom would have four heads. We'll talk about that later. If you remember in Daniel 2, it was the belly and the thighs of brass which symbolized the kingdom of Greece. Then the Bible says, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a what? 
A fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great what? Iron teeth, and it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had what? Ten horns. Now, we need to define what these horns represent, and we don't have to do any kind of guessing because if in the, in the very same chapter, this is what Daniel says, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten what? Ten kings that shall arise. Now, please don't miss this. After Greece came Rome, and if you remember the other night, we talked about the legs being made of what metal? What is the teeth of the fourth, beasts, uh, of the fourth beast made out of? Iron, same thing, right? So don't miss this. The legs of iron, the teeth of iron, it was a symbol for the kingdom of Rome. But again, this power wouldn't rule forever. And Rome, unlike the other kingdoms, it wasn't overthrown by a more powerful kingdom. If you, tonight, if you're curious and you want to see something interesting, Google, why did Rome fall, okay? And somewhere in the list, you'll find something by an author by the name of Edward Gibbon. Edward Gibbon wrote this vol voluminous set of books called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. In that series, he outlines five reasons why Rome fell. Now, what's shocking is that the reasons why Rome fell have a portentous, ominous Uh, what's the right word, prophecy about republics that get too big and have too big of a welfare state and make entertainment and pleasure a priority, okay? But we won't get into that tonight. So what happens? Rome ultimately becomes carved out into smaller territories by these barbaric tribes from the northeast. And not one, not two, not 11, not 12, but exactly 10 divisions came up out of the Roman Empire. Now, those divisions became the modern, or became the ancestors for modern Europeans today, except for three kingdoms. Now, please don't miss this. These three kingdoms that were destroyed, they were not destroyed because they were necessarily weak. In fact, we have a term. What do we call it when someone defaces public property? What do we call that? Vandalism. Do you know who the Vandals were? These, this was a tribe. They were like ferocious. They would not just kill people. They would go through and cut down all the trees. They would set things on fire. They would even sow salt in the fields. If you're a gardener, you know that's not good for the soil. In fact, nothing grows after you do that. These guys were like pure barbarians. But those three tribes, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, they got... They suffered genocide, okay? And the question of why is important to our study tonight. But let me just make a point here. Rome didn't get carved up into 10 territories overnight. It got carved into one piece, two piece, three piece. And the final 10th division, I think it was the Ostrogoths, but they got divided in the year 476 AD. Now, don't miss that date. On our previous presentation, I should have emphasized this, but that date is important for our study because we need that fact. Now, don't worry, this seminar is not gonna get too technical with dates, but that date, it would be good to know. Okay, so 
If you remember in Daniel 2, it doesn't say it, but the image is clearly an image of a man. And so this image, we assume it had toes. And so that kind of corresponds with the 10 horns of Daniel 7. Now, tonight, we are going to look at something new that does not appear in Daniel 2. We are going to talk about the description of the Antichrist. And I want you to know something. If you could turn the clock back 150 years, if you went to the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Lutheran church, the Episcopalian church, if you went to all these different churches and you knocked in their door and you met the pastor and said, Pastor, who's the Antichrist? They'd all give you the same answer. But today in Christianity, something has happened. And what's happened is some alternate theories have arisen. And so today, there are three theories about who the Antichrist is. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to give you 12 marks of identity for this Antichrist power. And as I do this, I want you to see for yourself what the Bible says about the Antichrist. Here's the first clue. Are you ready? Daniel 7, verse 8, I consider the horns. How many horns were there again? Ten. And they represented the divisions of the Roman Empire, right? Okay, I consider the horns, and behold, there came up where? Among them, another little horn. Are we together so far? So there were how many horns originally? Ten. And then there comes up a? Eleventh one, right? Another little horn. Okay, so let's pause. Here's the first clue. Oh, by the way, all these churches that I mentioned earlier, Episcopal, you know, um, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, all of them, all of them will still agree that this little horn in Daniel 7 is the Antichrist. They will agree. But when you ask them who is the Antichrist, you'll get three different answers, okay? But let me, let me go on. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. The first clue is this. Whoever the Antichrist is, he arises out of the divisions of the Roman Empire, okay? I hope that doesn't disappoint anyone. It's not from North Korea. It's not from the Middle East, okay? According to prophecy, this 11th horn arises from the divisions of the Roman Empire. Clue number two. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another what? Let's review. What's a horn again? It's a king, right? And, and please don't miss this. If someone's a king... Does it make sense that he has to have a domain? You can't be a king unless you rule over something. Does that make sense? So a king always has a kingdom. They have to go together. You can't have one without the other, right? So here we have a little horn, and a horn, you told me, is a king or a kingdom. So if it's a little horn, that's just another way of saying it's a little what? It's a little kingdom. Are we together so far? Clue number three. He plucked up three. How many horns were there, by the way? There was 10. So look closely. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up how? So don't miss this. Some of you do gardening. And, you know, I confess, my parents forced me to garden when I was a kid. And I was so lazy, I would just hack off all the weeds at the, at the stem, you know? And inevitably, that shows up because after a few weeks, weeds have an amazing will to live, but they will just come right back, won't they? Guess what? 
the Bible's very explicit in this language. It says that he pulls up three horns by the... So let's review. What's a horn again? It's a kingdom, right? So this is another way of saying that it exterminates three kingdoms completely. Are, you th are we together? And we already learned who that was. The Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. If you ever wanted to find out who is the Antichrist, you simply have to just find out why were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths destroyed? If you Google that one question, you can answer this whole thing tonight. Let's keep going, though. It says in verse 21, I beheld and the same horn made what? War with what group of people? The saints. Let's keep reading. Verse 25 says, He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall what? Wear out the saints of the Most High. This 11th horn, he attacks God's people. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 24 says, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise what? After them. Now, please don't miss this. The eleventh horn does not arise simultaneously with the ten. It arrives after the ten have already been established. What date did we say the ten horns were finally established? 476 AD. Are we together so far? Okay. So, whatever this eleventh horn is, it arises sometime after the year 476 AD, after the divisions of the Roman Empire are established. Let's keep going. Verse 24 says he would be diverse. Let's look at this. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be what? Diverse from the first. Now, let me just point something out. The first ten horns, they were ten kingdoms. But this eleventh horn, he's different. How is he different? Did you notice that he attacks God's people? Did you notice that? He is not just a political power, he has a religious agenda. Are we together so far? It's not just political, but it also has a religious agenda. Why is it different? It's different because it's both political and religious. Now, tonight I'm going to make a statement, but I'm going to show this to you in much more detail in the upcoming presentations. Daniel 7 describes the Antichrist power. And Revelation picks up this same language and uses that same language to describe the Antichrist power in Revelation. Let me read this to you. Out of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, even before whom three fell. This is talking about the eleventh horn. Even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great, what? So, don't miss this. The eleventh horn, he's unique. He has eyes and a mouth that speaks very what? Great things. Don't miss that phrase, great things. Okay, so I'm going to jump over now to the book of Revelation, and I want you to look closely. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having how many heads? Seven heads. And how many horns? Ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a what? A leopard. And his feet were as the feet of a? Bear. And his mouth as the mouth of a? Lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Okay, let's pause right there. I want you to look at that verse. It's there on the screen for you. I want you to tell me these two books were written roughly 
700 years apart. But they were inspired by the same Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Don't miss this. Did you notice, did you notice that John describes a creature that is comprised of the same animals that Daniel saw come up in his dream. Did you see that? Let's review. What was the first animal that Daniel saw in his dream? He saw a lion. After the lion, there was a bear. After the bear, there was a leopard. Okay, so don't miss this. Some of you are very observant. Daniel was writing as these kingdoms would come. Does that make sense? Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. But who's writing Revelation? Who's the author? John. John is actually writing from the historical standpoint. Those kingdoms have already come. I want you to notice the order that he puts it in. He says that the beast was like a leopard. It had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. What do you notice about the order? It's backwards because they're just at two different points in history. Does that make sense? By the way, let's review something. How many heads does the bear have? I'm sorry, the lion have. How many heads? One. So keep counting, okay? How many heads does the bear have? One. How many heads does the leopard have? Four. And how many heads does that fourth beast have? The fourth beast only has one head. Does that make sense? And then how many horns do they have in total? You're right, you're right. They have, they have 11, but, but for, for sake of the, the, just the fourth beast, we can say that they have 10, right? So don't miss this. If you combine all of those, you have seven heads and how many horns? 10 horns, right? Does that make sense? You have seven heads and 10 horns, right? So this is what John is seeing. When John sees it, he sees this amalgamated beast. Like, you can't go to the zoo in Philly and see one of these, right? This is, a, this is a symbolic representation of the same Antichrist power that's described as the little horn in Daniel 7. Now, notice what it says. There was given unto him a mouth. Now, look closely. Speaking what? Great things. There it is. The same language that Daniel used. But now notice this. It says he doesn't just speak great things. He speaks what else? Blasphemies. Now, I'm going to tell you, the word blasphemies, it's a very specific term in Scripture. Blasphemies typically refers to when somebody tries to use things that only belong to God. Let me give you an example. Jesus <clears throat> claimed, or Jesus forgave a man's sins. They, they broke open the roof, they let a man down, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they, they had a panic attack. They said, who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but what? God alone. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus didn't speak blasphemy because Jesus is God. Amen? But the Pharisees, they just thought he was a person. They didn't see that he was God. So they accused him when he claimed to forgive sins, they accused him of speaking what? Blasphemies. Does that make sense? Here's another example. Jesus said, I and my father are one. When, when the Jews heard that, again, they went crazy. The Jews answered, and they were going to stone him. And they said, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou being a man, makest thyself what? God. So let me just give you two examples. In the Bible, if a man claims to be able to forgive your sins, the Bible calls that what? 
Blasphemy. If a man claims to be God, the Bible calls that what? Blasphemy. All right, let's move on. It says he's going to think to change what? Times and laws. Let me give you this in Daniel 7.25. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. So this is a prediction. This power would try to tamper with God's law. Verse 25 also said, they shall be given into his hand. This is the end of the verse. They shall be given into his hand, speaking of the saints, until a what? A time and times and the dividing of a time. Now, this time period, it appears seven times in scripture. And I want to tell you that we can understand what this means by simply looking at other parts of the Bible. Let's go over to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Notice what it says. And to the who? To the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the where? Into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for how long? Time and? Times and? Half a time. So same time period, but now it's using a different like language, okay? But let's just skip over back to verse 6. Here's what it says. And the who? Woman fled into the where? Same place where she hath the place prepared of God that they should feed her there how much? A thousand, two hundred and three score days. How much is a score? 20, so three score 60, right? Okay, so what does that mean? In the Bible, now some of you are going to struggle with this, but this is not hard to understand. We are on a solar calendar. In the Bible, they didn't use that. They used a lunar calendar. They just went by the cycles of the moon. Does that make sense? So every month had exactly 30 days. So in a in a biblical year, a biblical year had 360 days. Are, are we together so far? So if that formula is correct, that means that a time is one year, times is two years, half a time is half a year. That's how you get time times half a time equaling 1,260 days, okay? Some of you look perplexed, and I want to just make a point here. Everything that we cover is recorded, and we also have handouts. All of this information is in the handout, so don't worry. Are you okay? Because some of you are scribbling furiously, and you're like, don't change the slide. But don't worry about that, okay? Because it's all covered. Okay, all right. Now, I want to point something out. Is the beasts in Revelation and Daniel, are they literal or symbolic? They're symbolic. And I want to make a point. Time periods in the Bible can also be symbolic. So here's the explanation for that. In the Old Testament, God gave prophets messages, and those prophets would give their messages in one of three ways. They would either say it, they would write it. Sometimes, God would have them act it out. Like, you can read in the book of Isaiah, God told Isaiah to make this big hole in the wall of Jerusalem, and then he had to take all his stuff from his house and take it through the wall, but he had to do it while he was naked, okay? Now, I want to be clear. That was God's way of trying to make an impression upon the, the city of Jerusalem, right? Because if, you know, he could have said it or he could have written it, but if you see a naked prophet walking through the street carrying all his stuff, and he was supposed to tell him if they asked, the, I think it was the Phoenicians or someone was coming and they're going to strip you naked and they're going to take all of your stuff. Now, this is what Ezekiel is doing. If you read Ezekiel 4, God is having Ezekiel act out a prophecy. Notice what he has to do. When thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side. 
And thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah, how long? 40 days. Now notice this. He says, I have appointed thee each day for a what? Each day for a year. So what God is saying is, look, you're going to lie down on, your, on one side, and for every day that you do it, it's going to represent one year for the, for the house of Judah. Now, you can't use this everywhere, but in the symbolic passages of prophecy in Scripture, one day equals one year. And by the way, there's going to be a night when we're going to go through Daniel 9, and I'm going to make this crystal clear on that presentation. That's going to be on Friday night. So there's one more uh, there's two more points that I want to share with you. Three, actually. Revelation 13, verse 7 says, it was given unto him, this is the Antichrist power, to make war with the saints. We read that earlier. And to overcome them. And power was given him over how many people? All kindreds, tongues, and nations. What do you call a power that has worldwide power? It's a superpower, right? Okay, so it's going to be a formidable power. It's not going to be some... So, okay, so, so let me back up. There's something that I forgot to tell you. If this power rules for 1,260 prophetic days, that means if one day in Bible prophecy equals one year, what's the literal amount of time that he rules for? 1,260 years. Does that make sense? Because one day equals one year in prophecy. Now, this eliminates one popular theory that the Antichrist is one person. Because there's nobody that I know of that has that many candles on their birthday cake, right? So it has to be a system. Does that make sense? It has to be a system. And so we'll, we'll talk about that more later on. Okay, and then it says, all that dwell upon the earth shall, what? Worship him. All right, then the Bible says, in Revelation 13, verse 3, I saw one of his heads as it were what? Wounded to death. Now, let me pause here for a moment. Now, please listen carefully. Jesus came to this earth, and when he was baptized, he did public ministry. After he was baptized, he did public ministry for how long? Three and a half years. Now, don't, don't miss this. When Jesus was baptized... He came up out of the water. Are we together so far? And then he worked for three and a half years. At the end of three and a half years, what happened to Jesus? He died. He received a deadly wound. Does that make sense? Okay, and then what happened after that? Three days later, Jesus was what? He was resurrected. Hallelujah, amen? But the Bible says about this Antichrist power, it comes up out of the sea, it, it does its work for three and a half prophetic years. At the end of that period, it receives a deadly what? Wound. But then the Bible says that the deadly wound would be healed. And as a result of it, it says all the world would what? Wonder after the beast. Here's the clues that we have so far. It's, it arises out of the divisions of the Roman Empire. It's a small kingdom. It destroys three kingdoms that stand in its way. It persecutes God's people. It arises after the year 476. It is different from the first 10. It's not just a, poli it's a political power, but it's also a religious power. It speaks blasphemies. It claims to forgive sins, claims to be God. It thinks that it can change God's law. 
It rules for 1260 prophetic days or 1260 literal years. It is a global power. It receives a deadly wound. And then prophecy says that the deadly wound is healed. So there's 12 marks of identity. Now, I know that as we come to the end of this, the question that is on your mind is, okay, who is it, right? So let me say this. I'm not going to tell you tonight. I'm going to tell you tomorrow night, okay? And it's not because I'm trying to be like suspenseful or a cliffhanger. It's because I want you to examine the Bible evidence for yourself. The handout has all the answers to these descriptions, and you can look at it for yourself. But before we close, I want to just make this point. I hold seminars like this all over the world. And after a night like tonight, I have some people that are at the door like, okay, buddy, just tell me, who is it, you know? (laughs) And look, it's not that I mind telling. I don't mind telling you. It's not the issue. But do you know that you could know who the Antichrist is, and you would still be lost if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, amen? Let me read this verse to you. The Bible describes that at the end of time, there will be a group of people. It says, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the what? The love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, now look at this, God shall send them strong what? Delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in what? So I want to make this point. You see, there are some people out there today, they just, they just want to know, you know, they just want to know. I want you to be that person that doesn't just want to know, but you love the truth so much that when you know, you're going to let it change your life because you're willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Can you say amen to that? Don't just want to know. Don't just store up facts. Say, Lord, help me not to just know the truth, but help me to love the truth so much that if I see it, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus on that truth. Would you bow your heads with me as we close tonight? Father in heaven, we want to know the truth. And so my prayer is that every one of us in here tonight We will do our very best, not just to know who the Antichrist is, but you've said that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Help us to have that experience, that we will love the truth so much, because the truth is Jesus, that we're willing to follow him wherever he leads us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.